This time, Brother James Crace will come preach to us on the hands of God. The hands of God. You all ready? Yeah. Amen. God bless. God bless you. Thank you all for being here today. And thanks again for the invitation. You all are so uh, so gracious here. I really appreciate the, the love offering. And, and uh, to my surprise, I opened that envelope much more than I expected. Thank you all for that. And appreciate it. God bless you. Turn your Bibles to the 17th Psalm. I have a message that more laid on my heart. Some time ago, we've been studying in the book of Romans quite a while. And uh, Brother Samaru preached for us a few Wednesdays ago, uh, Sukrash, and uh, he, he, he hit on this subject, on the hands of God, and, and I'd already started putting some things together on that, and uh, of course, the anthropomorphisms of God are, as we said, they're, they're, we don't need to go through that definition anymore, but we know that God is uh, is able to and has condescended to to communicate with us, and I'm so thankful that He has, yeah. and and that we're able to understand. Uh, I'm glad that He gave us one revelation, not many. Wouldn't it be a mess if we all each individually received a revelation from God? How we would interpret that? You think things are mixed up now? But we have God's Word, and, and we are thankful for it. Yeah. Psalm 17, verse 6, begins with, I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me. As Brother Johnson already preached on that. O God, incline thine ear unto me, and hear my speech. Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand. Amen. Them which put their trust in thee, from those that rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of thy eye. Apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings from the wicked that oppress me and from my deadly enemies who compass me about. So we understand that that God is indeed a, a gracious God. And he, as we've learned, he does answer prayer and he is happy to. Uh, as we call upon him according to his will. And then the psalmist ended this. David said in verse 15, As for me, I will behold thy face. We have a lot of characteristics of God here that are attributed to human. And he said, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I will, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. So we have a, a lot more revealed here than than what we can cover in the time we have. But God's sovereign hand in salvation is what I want to speak concerning today. And and because this is, uh, when this church was founded, back whenever, I don't know the history so much of it, but they named it the Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. And, and so... We're going to follow up on that. The Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. 
I believe that God was a, a Baptist. <laughs> you know, John the Baptist. He wasn't John the Methodist. He was John the Baptist. And, and as the Lord, we see in, in Romans chapter 9, as we consider this subject, and this is actually where my text comes from. Romans, the ninth chapter, verse 6. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That's important. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even our father Isaac, and verse 11 says, For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto thee, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Esau have I loved, or Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. And thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Had not the powder power over the clay, the same lump, to make one vessel unto, another, unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if, God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might have make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had before prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We pray you would bless it. May the Holy Spirit give us unction from on high. And may we indeed come to know and understand the great blessings of your sovereignty. For it's in your precious name, your precious son's name we pray. Amen. So we have here that God has shown us that he has a, a sovereign will, he is sovereign in, in salvation. And, and I have a question, first of all, 
Has the Lord ever placed his hand upon you and brought you down to the dust? Has he ever brought you to a place before his throne of sovereign mercy? Anyone who experiences the grace of God in salvation will be brought down to the dust. That's right. And they will be humiliated before the throne of God's sovereign mercy. Before God exalts a man, he will humble him. And whosoever, Christ said in chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 12, whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. So before God clothes any sinner with the righteousness of Christ, he strips that sinner of his own filthy rags of righteousness. We have many examples in the Word of God. We see in Zacchaeus, there in Luke 19, we see it clearly exemplified here. So when Jesus came to the place, we're told, he looked up and saw him, and he said unto Zacchaeus, Make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. So when God calls the sinner to Christ, He always says, come down. The way of salvation is a downward path. You must come down before you can go up and be called of God. To be called, uh, God's call is a humbling call. Because when God calls us, he shows us our total depravity and our wickedness, our vileness. And because of depravity... Grace has to be, salvation has to be by grace. You know, the preachers today, you hear them saying that uh, they're calling sinners to Christ. Uh, they make that call, uh, makes them proud. It exalts them in their own self-esteem. It leads them to think today's preaching that I can come to God when I choose. He's in my hands. I do not need the influence of God and Holy Spirit. I have power within myself. I have a free will. They believe that it's not God's call. That's the thing that determines whether I shall be saved or not. But it's my own free will. That's what's taught today in most of the churches. Today, sinners are being called to go up and not to come down. Listen, God always humbles the sinner. So the first step you must take, sinner, is a downward step. You must come down from your own good works, from your own self-righteousness. Come down from what you think you are and what you're doing. Because in the eyes of God, you're a worm. You're depraved without any help or any hope of your own. That's that's a gigantic step, and it's, it's far too humbling for most. But it is indeed a step that must be taken. Because some stand upon their own self-sufficiency. Some stand upon their own self-righteousness, their own works. My good works outweigh my bad works. I'll wind up in heaven. That's what is being taught today in many of the so-called churches today. There's there's not, not a greater step downward, but it must be taken. Listen, sinner, you must come down. You must come down. Come down from all your hope in yourself. And in what you do, come down until you see that you are utterly without strength, that you're utterly lost. And until you see that, you're nothing. 
and you can do nothing. Come down until the waters of God's wrath swell around you and you are made to see that you justly deserve to die and that you are justly cast into hell because of your own depravity and your own wickedness. Come down, you must be made to see your utter wickedness. You must be made to see your vileness, your corruption, your filthiness before God. When God means to save, he says, come down. Listen, proud sinner, it's a foolish thing for you to be proud. It's, it's foolish to exalt yourself so very high, to think that you're something. Listen, you're nothing, nothing but sin in the eyes of God. Right. Nothing but loathsome sin. From the sole of your foot to the crown of your head, you're sin, you're totally depraved without the regeneration, regeneration power and the new spirit that God would give you. Yeah. You must come down, come down to the feet of Christ. The place of mercy is in the dust, come down. And you will either come down now by the power of his grace under the influence, of, the effectual influence of the Holy Spirit and the word of God, or you'll come down in the day of his wrath. When every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. When men are cast down, Job said in, in 22 and verse 29, then thou shalt say there is lifting up. And when he shall save, that's when he shall save the humble person. So we see sovereign mercy set before us. It's most clearly uh, set before us in the Holy Scripture. And it is written as a lightning bolt through the entire Word of God. Amen. In Hebrews 2, verse 16, we read, Verily, he took not upon himself the nature of angels, but he took on the seed of Abraham. When our Lord Jesus Christ came to save fallen creatures, he passed by the fallen angels. Listen, yeah. He passed by the, the ones, uh, the, the seed of Adam, and he laid hold on the seed of Abraham. He, done, he did not take hold of the seed of Adam of all men, but he took hold of the seed of Abraham, who are God's elect. Yeah. And he delivered them from the bondage of death by his irresistible hand of grace. We were lost. We were heading headlong, rushing headlong into destruction until Christ reached down his hand of his sovereign mercy and his omnipotent grace and he delivered us. In Zechariah, which we read in, that every sinner is saved as a brand plucked from the burning. Zechariah 3, verse 2. Snatched out of the jaws of hell. Snatched out from among perishing men by sovereign mercy and irresistible grace. He passed by the fallen angels, passed by the sons of Adam, and took hold of the seed of Abraham. So God, our Savior, reserves a right of absolute sovereignty in the exercise of his saving grace, in the salvation of sinners, and that by his omnipotent hand. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven 
and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? So it is indeed a Bible doctrine. You cannot read through the Bible without being confronted with the fact of divine sovereignty on almost every page. Today we hear much talk about the fundamentals of faith and, and people calling themselves fundamentalists. And yet they never mention the gospel doctrine of divine sovereignty. And when they do mention it, it's to denounce it or, or poke fun at those who believe it. I'll, I'll tell you, let man hoot and holler as they please. Let men, if they dare, deny it. Let men, if they dare, ridicule it and rebel against it as they will. But God's indisputable sovereignty is the fundamental doctrine of the Holy Scripture. It's a vital point of Christian theology. Listen, if you doubt the prevalence and the importance of this doctrine of God's sovereignty in the exercise of His saving mercy, in the exercise of His love, and His grace. I challenge you to read the Word of God through one more time. Yeah. Read it again and consider what it says. And you begin at the book of Genesis and you go right on through to the end of the book in Revelation. And you'll find the Gospel doctrine of divine sovereignty, sovereignty de- repeatedly over and over again declared and explained and illustrated throughout this sacred volume. It's set forth not in a few verses, but listen, it's on every page of inspiration. God has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. For he saith to Moses, what we read earlier, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. We've got many illustrations. I want to give you, first of all, Satan and Adam. The influence of God's sovereignty there. And the exercise of His grace. They're numerous as the characters are mentioned in the Bible. Just as many characters that are mentioned and given to us as examples. which show, shows the sovereignty of God. Satan led a revolt against heaven against the throne of God. One-third of the heavenly angels he dragged down with him. They fell from their holy habitation. And as a result of their sin, they were forever doomed to suffer the wrath of God. No mercy was extended to them. No grace was given them. No grace was offered. No Savior was sent to deliver them. The fallen angels were forever damned without the least measure of grace. But Adam did the same thing. Adam revolted against the throne of God. He disobeyed God willingly. He chose Eve over God. And he did, indeed, do the same thing that Satan did. But what happened? God was gracious. God promised the fallen sons of Adam a Savior, a Redeemer, a way of mercy, didn't he? In Genesis 3.15, we read of the Savior. The angels who sinned were passed by, reprobates, without mercy. Yet, when Adam did the same thing, God extended his hand of mercy to that fallen man. Listen, that's divine sovereignty right there. 
And why did God pass by the angels that fell? Why did God extend a grace of fallen man? Only the answer can be given. The only answer can be given is he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardeneth. You can either rebel against this message of divine sovereignty, and many do. And you rebel, and you stay in your rebellion, you will perish under the hand of God's wrath. Or you can bow to the sovereign God and say with Christ, Even so, Father, for it seems good in thy sight. In Matthew 11, verse 26. Whether you bow to God's throne or rebel against it, the fact remains the same. Doesn't change God a bit. The God of the Bible is an absolute sovereign. He can save you or he can damn you. That's his right as God. It's entirely up to him. We'll go with some more examples. God laid his hand on some of the angels who lost their lost not their first estate, but he passed by others. Even so, among fallen sons of Adam, there are some who were chosen of God, to whom he will be gracious. And there are some who, whom God has passed by, to whom no grace is given. We'll go with the two sons of Adam. You think of Cain and Abel. Listen, God passed by Cain, the older, but he saved Abel, his brother. Abraham had two sons, didn't he? At least two. Esau and Jacob. Listen, God passed by Esau because he hated Esau. And he saved Jacob because he loved him. In the days of Noah, God destroyed the entire human race, except for one man and his family. Why did God save Noah? The Bible tells us in Genesis 6, 8, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Pharaoh is another example. Throughout the Old Testament, we're, we're given example after example of God's sovereignty and salvation. And one glaring example of that sovereignty is Pharaoh. God raised him up for no other purpose than to burn his, to, to harden his heart, to dump him and his whole army into the Red Sea so that his sovereign power might be declared throughout all the world. These, and these are, the, the examples don't end there, but into the New Testament. Perhaps you think, well, all that was Old Testament time. God's not like that now. God's changed. No, he hasn't. The God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. He has not changed. That's right. He has never changed. That's right. He never changes. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. And then in Hebrews 13 and verse 8. His glorious sovereignty is just as clearly exemplified and even more fully revealed in the New Testament. When our Lord passed by uh, people gathering his disciples, he called Simon and Andrew, but he didn't call their father. He chose James and John, but not Zebedee. He healed some and left others to die. He called some and he passed by others. Listen, he saved some and he who even sought him. The woman with the issue of blood is a great example of that. But he did not save others who sought him. You think of the rich young ruler. He, he sought the Lord, but he never saved him. 
the Lord Jesus pray for some. And some may think that rich young ruler was saved. You need to talk to your pastor about that and see what you all believe here. But I believe he was trusting in his riches. And he didn't want to give them up. That's right. He did not want to give them up. But anyway, the Lord Jesus even prayed for some. And he refused to pray for others. Look at John chapter 17, the Lord's Prayer. This is truly the Lord's Prayer. The other one that a lot of people call the Lord's Prayer is the example prayer. But John 17, verse 9, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Look at uh, verse 20. We could read this whole chapter. It's a great chapter. But neither pray I for those for these alone, but but for them which also which shall believe on me through their word. He's sovereign in his prayer. He's sovereign on whom and those whom he calls. Christ died for some. He didn't die for all. What a heresy that is. Uh, the Unlimited atonement, the universal atonement. In John chapter 10, he died for some, he didn't die for all. I know these things you've all heard and and you know them, but I think they need repeated from time to time. In John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Not for the goats. He said the hireling, he that is a hireling and not the shepherd whom whose own uh, the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. In verse 26 of John 10, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Christ died for his sheep. And the fact is, the Testament, the New Testament plainly declares and forcibly teaches the gospel doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty and the exercise of his grace. Let's read some scripture. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 11, I'm sorry. Verse 20, verse 20 through 27. <clears throat> then began he to abrade the cities where most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. He said, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sire and Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, Sodom and Gomorrah, in the day of judgment, than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee have been done in Sodom, it would have been, it would have remained unto this day, as he speaks of Sodom again. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me and my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, and, no, and neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and whomsoever, to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. John chapter 12, you look at verse 36. It says, While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. He says, These things spake Jesus, and departed, and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. He hid them himself from them. And he said it, he did this in verse 38, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah, or Isaiah had said, he hath blinded their minds and hardened their hearts, that they should not see and with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, that I should heal them. These things said Isaiah, Esaias, when he saw his glory and spake of him. In the book of, to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 5, Even so, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. That's right. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Hath Israel not obtained that which he seeketh for? But the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath, blind, hath given them a spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear. God is doing all this. He said, Give them unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see, and bow down their, their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. He did it for a reason. But rather through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles. Amen. Praise God for that. And that to provoke them to jealousy. In the book of Romans again, the 11th chapter. Oh, verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And he shall be recompensed. And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Yeah. This is the... One thing we must see that God is absolutely sovereign yeah. in His in the salvation of His elect. He wounds, He heals, He kills, He He makes alive. Listen, He is sovereign, has a sovereign right to do so. He has a sovereign right to save me or damn me. It's His choice. That's right. And either to be gracious to me or to pass me by. It is God's sovereign choice. That's right. Rebels will rise and and fall down before his sovereign throne and, and beg for mercy, if they will, like the leper, and fall down at his feet and say, If thou wilt, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. That's how we have to approach God. Will you be will you perish in your pride and in your rebellion? 
Or will you take your place at the feet of Jesus and in the dust and as a depraved sinner and beg for mercy? We sing the song once in a while, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, Oh, do not pass me by. So it's a vital doctrine, isn't it? I tell you without hesitation, the gospel doctrine of, a, of divine sovereignty is vital. That's the only way people can be saved. That's right. You either bow to God's righteous sovereignty or you will perish in the rebellion. Spurgeon once said this, If you in your heart hate the doctrine that God has a right to save or destroy you, you give me a very grave cause to suspect whether you know your own position in the sight of God. Yeah. And he went on to say, For I am sure that no humble sinner will doubt God's right to destroy him. Right. I will tell you, says, it is your unhumbled pride that kicks against these doctrines. It is your infernal self-conceit that's born in hell, Spurgeon went on to say, that makes you hate this truth. Men have always kicked at it and always will. When Christ preached it once, they would have dragged him down to the brow of the hill and cast him down headlong. And I expect always to meet the same opposition. If I speak out broadly and plainly, and plainly, but let me tell you solemnly, Spurgeon said, if you do not believe God's right over you, I'm afraid your heart has never been right before God. He would be no God at all if he had no right, right. over you, would he? So I'm here to lift high the glorious banner of God's absolute sovereignty. I'm calling proud worms of the dust to bow down before God and that before his sovereign throne. Bow down today. Don't wait. And I'm telling the proud worm to do that. I'm and that in the name of God calling you to lay down your arms against God, your rebellion and the surrender to God. It is his, in his total sovereignty. As the Bible says, be ye reconciled to God because you must either surrender the sovereign dominion of Christ or be crushed into hell in your rebellion. That's the only way it can be. Does the men rail at me uh, for preaching the sovereignty of God's grace? Well, that's too harsh. That's, that's too hard. That's for seasoned uh, believers. No, that's the only thing that will save you is the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's sovereignty. They, they call me a hard shell. They call me an antinomian, a, a hyper-Calvinist. Have you ever been called that? I care nothing about that. I'm happy to make them angry if, if man hates the truth of God. Listen, I shall never be backward about stirring up wrath. I don't go set forth to do it. But if a man is offended by the character of God, I shall be delighted to offend him. Isaiah didn't. He wasn't worried about offending people when he said in 45, in verse 5, Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. He said, I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Verse 6, they, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light. I create darkness. I make peace. I create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. You listening? He says, drop down ye heavens, and from above, let the skies pour down the righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation. 
Let the righteous spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe unto him that striveth with his master. He says, let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth, why makest thou, or what makest thou, or thy work? He hath no hands. Would we say that God hath no hands? Would we say that God hath no power? Woe unto him that saith unto his father, Why begattest thou me? Or to the woman, Why hast thou brought forth? What hast thou brought forth? So you understand this doctrine of sovereignty. Isaiah 43 is a good passage to read. And you say we've got time. I've already gone over, but but I'm really just getting started. Keep going, brother. Let's read together Isaiah 43. I think we got time for it this morning. And we shall profit by reading God's word. Amen. That's right. But now thus saith the Lord, verse 1, <clears throat> that created thee, O Jacob, and that formed thee, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And the rivers... Through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things. Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Let Or let them hear and say it is truth. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Amen. I, even I, am the Lord. Yeah. And beside me there's no Savior. That's right. I have declared and have saved and have showed when there is no strange God among you. Therefore, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Amen. Yea, there, he says, before the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver, deliver out of my hands. I will work, and who shall let it? No. So you read this and you understand, as we read in chapter 9 of Romans, I want to show you five examples of God's great sovereignty that Paul gives us here in Romans chapter 9. He has set before us five examples of God's glorious sovereignty and the exercise of his mercy. He sets before us Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, and then Pharaoh in this one chapter. First of all, the apostle Paul, inspired of God by the Holy Spirit to show us God's sovereignty 
in the exercise of his mercy, in the way that he dealt with Ishmael and Isaac. Romans 9, verse 6, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they called children, all children, but in Isaac, listen, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will, will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. That's what God promised Abram. He had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And here they're held before us as an allegory, as a spiritual picture and illustration of the everlasting distinction of God's elect from the reprobate of this world. Back in, in Genesis chapter 4, in verse 22, it says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he was who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise, which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendered to bondage, which is Agar. So the birth of Isaac, you hear, was a promise. Yeah. And without a miracle, it would never have taken place. That's right. Isaac portrays salvation by the miraculous work of God's sovereign grace. The birth of Ishmael was not by promise, but it was in an ordinary course of nature. It portrays man's efforts to save himself by works. They, they didn't... Sarah laughed at God and had Abraham go into her handmaid and, and then had a son named Ishmael. It was all of man. It was all of his doing. He was a product. Ishmael was a product of human effort. Isaac was a product of divine intervention. Yeah. Ishmael was a child of bondage. Yeah. Isaac was a child of liberty. Ishmael was cast out of the house. Isaac was the heir of grace. Listen, Ishmael and Isaac are still fighting today. Ishmael hates Isaac. What's going on over in Israel right now is a result of this very thing. Exactly. The, the people of Ishmael, the Muslims, yep. hate the Jews. That's right. they, hate, they hate Isaac. Exactly. Galatians 4.28 tells us, now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Amen? What a blessing that is. John chapter 3 says in verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's Isaac. I mean, that's Ishmael. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Paul told the Philippians in chapter 3 and verse 3, For we are the circumcision, which worship God in spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So we have this allegory between Ishmael and Isaac. And then we have Jacob and Esau. In, the, in this place, in verse 10 of, of Romans 9, in verse 10 through 13, we have 
Jacob and Esau. It says here, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the promise of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her that the elder served the younger. And a, and a very hated verse in the word of God by many. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I loved less. No, Esau have I hated. In these verses we see the Holy Spirit inspired the apostle to use Jacob and Esau as an example to teach us something of the glory of God in the exercise of his electing love. We see Jacob and Esau, they were conceived at the same time, they were born at the same time, had the same mother, the same father. Before they were even born, God said to their mother, Rebekah, the elder shall serve the younger. And he gave this reason because he said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. He has every right to have that, to yeah. do that. And this was done before either of them had either done any good or evil. That's right. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, makes it very clear, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. That the purpose of God according to election might stand. Yeah. Not of works, but of him that calleth. I hope you all get a hold of this because this is why God has sent me this morning to declare this great truth. The great distinction made between these two brothers can only be traced to one thing. The sovereign call of God. That's right. In the book of Exodus, chapter 33, verse 18. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. This was preached on this during this conference, the back of God. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. I will proclaim to Moses, he said, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So God's choice of Jacob. The object of his love was made before the children were born. The choice was made before they had done any good or evil. And the Lord's choice of Jacob was made according to the purpose of God. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. The foundation and the source of all mercy, all love, and all grace is the sovereign will of God. That's right. You understand the only point the only point, and there was only one point, in which the sons of Isaac were different. Esau was the oldest, according to the flesh and, and natural custom, had priority and power over Jacob. Yeah. But you'll find in the Word of God that God switches that many times. He takes uh, what would naturally be, uh, in our estimation, the one with the blessing, the one with the glory, the one with the inheritance. He switches it to the younger. Hasn't he turned the world upside down? So you understand, the Lord's choice of Jacob was made according to that purpose. The foundation and the source of all mercy and love and grace is the sovereign will of God. Yeah. There's only one point where they were together, where they were different, I mean, was their age. Esau came out first. The younger son was, was but God chose the younger son to receive mercy and to partake of his grace. And Paul said to the Corinthian church in chapter 
1 of 1 Corinthians, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men were after the flesh, how many, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should justify in his sight or in his presence. So no, no flesh should glory in his presence. I'm sorry, I misquoted that. All this distinction flowed from God's eternal love for Jacob and his eternal hatred for Esau. The great fundamental gospel doctrine of divine sovereignty, the doctrine of election, absolute predestination, everlasting reprobation are plainly stated in this portion of Holy Scripture. Because God's love for Jacob, his hatred for of Esau, were both by his own sovereign determination. That's right. He tells us in Matthew chapter Malachi chapter one and verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet say, yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Malachi said, saith the Lord, saith of Malachi. He said, yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. So God left Esau to himself. He dealt with him in justice. Esau went to hell because he despised Christ. He preferred the mess of beans to the covenant birthright of God's chosen. Listen, all Edomites are the children, and all the children of Esau go to hell for the same reason. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So Jacob was saved by God's sovereign mercy, by the mercy of and the truth and the justice of God in Christ. That's right. All the sons of Jacob, all of us are saved the same way and for the same reason. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And he says in verse 26, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness. Yeah. His righteousness, that he might be just, yeah. and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Where is boasting then? Yeah. Is it, it is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. I said there was a five examples in the fifth is Pharaoh. In verse 14 through 18 of Romans 9, it says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. When did God say this through the scripture to Pharaoh? You ever thought of that? He said, the scripture saith unto Pharaoh. Did he have the scripture? 
someone must have said it to him or the Bible wouldn't have told us. But he, uh, he says, he says in verse, that's another subject altogether. But therefore, he says, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. So you understand in, in this passage, anticipating the objections of proud sinners to this great blessed doctrine of God's goodness, the doctrine of God's sovereignty and grace and glory in Christ. I think anticipating man's objection to his mercy, Paul does not apologize for it. He doesn't try to make excuses for God. He doesn't try to explain it or defend it. Instead, he just boldly asserts this doctrine even more, even more so and more dogmatically, reminding us of God's revelation of his glory to Moses, using Pharaoh as an example of his sovereignty. Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Who dares charge God with such folly? Whatever God does is right, whether you think so or not. Paul rests his doctrine on Scripture alone. That's all we can do. He uses God's own words to Moses, and that to declare God's sovereign mercy. So we look at these things, and, and to make application of this, the hands of God and the hand of God, God has spoken, and that's enough. The sinners to bow to him, to bow to the throne of grace, bow down in the dust before the throne of God's sovereign mercy, trusting Jesus Christ alone, or you will forever perish under his wrath. Salvation is not by your will, it's by God's will. It's not by your works, it's by God's grace, the work of Jesus Christ. Right. Salvation is to be had only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray God will give you faith in him. Be you reconciled to God. Sovereign mercy is uh, in the crucified Savior is the sinner's only hope. In the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. What a blessing that God chose to use us in the salvation of his elect. Amen. I count it no greater privilege in the world than to preach the gospel. Amen. Amen. God bless him. To wit, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, then, we are ambassadors for Christ. <laughs> As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And Paul goes on to say, as each preacher needs to, to agree, we then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain, for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation I have succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I ask this morning, do you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? Has God worked a work of grace? Has, his, has he put his hand upon you? Do you know him as his Savior? Confess and follow him, serve him as he would have us do. Thank you, brother. Praise God.
Very good. Very good. In Isaiah 46, he says in verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God. You know, that, you've heard that statement before, right? You've heard that verse before. There's only one that can say, I am God. That's right. Only one. And there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Well, that, that sums it up, doesn't it? That sums it up. But think about the next verse. Sometimes we don't read that one as often. Calling a, raven, a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. I agree with Brother Christ when he said he came here, and I believe it was by appointment. Yeah. God ordained him to come declare the things of his hand and his work of salvation. Executed my counsel, uh, my counsel from a far country. I've spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. I expect God will save his people from their sins because he said he would. Right? He's, he's sovereign to do that. I expect that from him. And I don't say that in a bra brash way. They're just honoring his word, honoring his promise. But at the same time, that man that executes the counsel of the Lord, Brother Brother Christ had made mention of it. If, if you look in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 13, And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For I will now stretch out my hand, my hand, that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in every in, in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up to show thee and my thee my power, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. It could be sinner one day for the glory of God and by his sovereignty when he says, depart from me, I never knew you, that that be fulfilled in your life. And he's right to do. It's a very sobering thing, like he said in his introduction. It's a very humbling thing to know that God has the right to do with you whatever he wants. He's right to do it. Thank God he exercises his hand unto salvation for his people. <laughs> it's wonderful. wonderful. All right, Brother White.